0: Or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and an inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him father as we have our Bibles open we pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher give us wisdom and understanding as we look together we pray these things in Jesus name Amen. Uh, there has been a declaration of war in the Swift household in recent days I have declared war between myself and some of the mice that have been giving us trouble in our garage uh, now some of the battle skirmishes that have occurred I have come out victorious I've uh, captured a handful of these mice, but there is one mouse that is driving me absolutely insane. Uh, He is proving to be quite a worthy adversary. doesn't matter how I bait the trap or where I position the trap, the mouse just continues to evade it. He continues to clean the trap without setting it off. It is driving me nuts, but he is showing himself to be much wiser in these things than I am. Well, just like I have declared war in trying to trap these mice, when we are here in this section of, gospel of uh, Mark's gospel in chapter 12, we see that the traps are set to catch Jesus. There has been a declaration of war from the spiritual leaders of Jesus' day to try to trap Jesus and get rid of him. They are sick of his following. They are sick of his teaching. They are sick of, that, of him impeding on what they perceive to be their place of prestige and power in the kingdom of God. And what we're going to see over the next couple weeks are these traps that are laid out for him, seeking to ruin his reputation, get him arrested, and ultimately to get him killed. And we're looking at the first of these traps this morning, trap number one in our text We see that the spiritual leaders are trying to ruin Jesus' reputation by political controversy. Uh, We all know how um, dicey political situations can be, political topics, that depending on how one responds to them, it can be completely polarizing. The chief priests understand that, and they want to use that against Jesus to trap him and ruin him. And they're really actually quite wise in the way that they do this because if you look at verse 13, verse 13, the chief priests bring together two groups of Jewish people who were natural enemies of one another. We see that they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Who were these folks? Well, the Pharisees were known for being extremely anti-Rome. They thought it was Uh, dishonoring to God for them to be subjugated by a pagan people for the kingdom of God to be subjugated to a pagan nation the Herodians on the other hand were the complete opposite they were pro-Rome they as Jews saw advantage in uh, adhering to the Roman Empire because they thought that it could leverage their position uh, as Israelites in the world and these two people who are opposed come together against their common enemy Jesus and they have after buttering him up quite a lot in verse 14 they ask him a political controversial question they ask him a question about taxes Uh, take a look at verse 14 verse 14 they say to him is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not should we pay them or should we not essentially there's asking Jesus Is it dishonoring of God for us to pay taxes to a government that is actively oppressing his people? Yes or no? You can imagine how sticky of a situation Jesus is in here because if he answers yes, you should pay taxes to this oppressive government, he risks possibly losing a large portion of his following who were Jews who by and large did not like Rome. But if he says, no, you should not pay taxes to this government, he risks being accused of being a dangerous revolutionary like some of the Jewish zealots of his day. So how's he going to respond? Well, in verse 15, we see his response. And just like the mouse in my garage, he cleans the trap without getting caught in it, without setting it off. In verse 15, he just doesn't even choose to play their game. He calls them out. He says, why put me to the test? And then he essentially says, does anyone have a quarter in their pocket? Uh, Verse 15, he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Someone must have pulled one out of their pocket and presented it to him. It would have looked something like this. Here's a a, a denarius from uh, Jesus' day. Uh, The inscription had the face of Caesar on it. And Jesus asks... Whose likeness is on this coin? They reply, Caesar's. And Jesus' reply in verse 17 is simple. Well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You're using their currency. You're participating in their economy. Play by their rules. Give them what is rightfully theirs. But that's not all he says, is it? Because also in verse 17, he goes on to say, and give to God the things that are God's. The point of the text is so simple and very straightforward. It's almost not even worth mentioning. But the main point of the text is this. Jesus is teaching us that followers of Jesus honor human government, and they do so under the higher authority of God himself. We are to honor human government under God. Now that's a simple thing to say, but we understand that there is a ton of, of navigation that needs to take place in our lives as we live in this world that is a political world, and that this isn't always easy to simply honor human government under God. In fact, this passage really raises a question that you and I need to wrestle with. How was Jesus, as the Son of God, able to point to a corrupt and pagan government and tell his people... Pay for it. Well, Jesus had a full-orbed understanding that he got from the totality of God's word. He had a full-orbed biblical theology that he brought to bear on this situation that enabled him to understand how God has established government, how God works in and through government, and how he commands you and I to interact with government. We need to have that same mindset, that same understanding that Jesus had as we make our own spiritual pilgrimage. I want us to think together this morning about what God's word tells us in the broadest sense about the topic of human government. I want to equip us this morning with some biblical tools that we can put in our spiritual tool belt. So that as we are making our way through this world, we can do so with wisdom and discernment as we exercise our citizenship. I want us to be able to have self-assurance uh, self and, and confidence in God the next time we turn on the television and we see another terrible atrocity committed by another oppressive world government anywhere uh, in, in the world. Uh, we're entering into an election year as citizens of America. Um, How can we go in, in a time that typically we might get a little angsty, we might get a little perplexed, how can we go in not just thinking politically, but thinking biblically about these things? So this morning, we are doing a total overview of the Bible on the topic of human government, from Genesis to Revelation. You think I'm joking? I'm not joking. I'm serious. We're really going to do it. I have nine points, okay, nine points. The first service survived. You will survive too, trust me. And what I hope to do in this quick, fast-paced nine points is give us biblical tools to help us know how to think, act, and pray in a way that honors human government under God. So you're going to need your Bibles. I'm going to be super fast-paced. Uh, I'm, I'm going to mention these passages, and we're going to have to blow through them in, in the time that we have together. So I want you to turn in your Bibles as we start to Genesis chapter 1, as we look at a full-orbed understanding of what God has told us about human government, and we're starting in the very beginning in Genesis chapter one. Point one of the nine points. First of all, what the Bible shows us, number one, is that God established human governance from the beginning of creation as a good gift. God established human government governance from the beginning of creation as a good gift. I want us to take a look at verses 20, starting at verse 26 of Genesis 1. Verse 26, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth when God created us as his people he gave us the duty he gave us the right to exercise dominion to exercise rulership over his creation so that we might bring about order that we might bring about flourishing and prosperity to the world that he gave us to stored well we can see here the seedlings of of the legitimacy of human government in our world Christians don't believe what some secularists believe that human governance is a necessary evil Genesis 1 teaches us that from the beginning of creation God gave us human governance as a necessary good it was a gift to bring order and peace to his world but we know because just a couple chapters later in Genesis what happens Sin enters the world, and it taints everything, including human government. So we know that it doesn't, human government doesn't always live up to the good thing that God intended it to be because we are tainted with sin. And that takes us to our second point, that number two, God holds human government accountable for their sin. God holds human government accountable for their sin. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. 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 Uh, the book of Exodus, when we read it, is essentially one huge story about God bringing judgment to an evil and oppressive government. Whose government was that? Egypt. And delivering his people who were suffering the oppression, his nation, the nation of Israel. And in the mysteriousness of his ways, he allows Israel to suffer under the oppression of Egypt for four hundred years before he intervenes. Uh, This should be such a comfort to us as we see sometimes looking out in the world and we wonder to ourselves, why is God allowing sin, why is he allowing evil to continue? Well, his timing sometimes is just different from ours. But we see in his good timing, he would bring about judgment upon the people of Egypt, their government, bringing the plagues, and then ultimately defeating their army as he brings his people out in the great exodus. I want us to take a look in particular at chapter 2, chapter 2 starting in verse 23, comfort that we can get that God knows and God holds accountable the evils of our world and the human governments that exist in them. Chapter 2, starting at verse 23, it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God holds human government accountable for their sins. That takes us into the historical books in the Old Testament to point three. Point three, what we can learn about human government from the Bible, God blesses nations when human governments rule justly and righteously. God blesses nations when human governments rule justly and righteously. When we read the historical books of the Bible that begin in the book of Judges and go all the way to Ezra, What we're reading is essentially the grand, tumultuous history of what God did in and through the nation of Israel. Their ups, their downs, their windings, and their turnings, how he worked. Uh, I want us to look in particular smack dab in the middle of the historical writings at 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. Who was the best king in all of Israel? Israel. David, right? When we are turning to 2 Samuel 23, we're reading the dying words of the best king who reigned over Israel, King David. And in his dying words, I want us to take a look at verse 3 and 4, he tells us an important truth. He says this, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. God brings blessing to nations and rulers who rule according to the fear of who he is, who rule according to his standard of justice and his standard of righteousness. But we know also from the rest of the historical books that that blessing can be forfeited When government does not rule according to God's design, when they act unjustly and unrighteously, they forfeit the blessing that God wants to bring. God blesses nations and can bless nations through human governance. But we have to be careful because point four is this. Uh, God commands us not to overestimate human government. He wants to bless, but we ought not to overestimate how God works in and through human government. That takes us to the poetic writings of of the Bible. I want us to take a look at the book of Psalms. Book of Psalms. I hope you can see how we're progressively making our way through the Bible on this topic. The book of Psalms actually begins by putting human government in its rightful place. If you take a look at Psalm 2, Psalm 2 begins by telling us Uh, Giving giving commands to human government I want us to take a look at verse 10 of Psalm 2 Uh, Psalm 2 verse 10 says Sorry Psalm 2 verse 10 says Now therefore, O kings, be wise Be warned, O rulers of the earth Serve the Lord with fear And rejoice with trembling Kiss the son, lest he be angry And you perish in the way For his wrath is quickly kindled Blessed are all Who take refuge in him. The book of Psalms starts out by saying all authority is under the ultimate jurisdiction of God. And then the entire book of Psalms is just praising and worshiping God. Because he is almighty over all of heaven and earth. His reign is supreme. And then the book ends, Psalms ends by telling us how we ought to think of human government in light of his rule. I want us to take a look at Psalm 146. Psalm 146. I'm not hearing the pages of the Bible rustling. I hope you're paying attention. Psalm 146, uh, verses 3 and 4. The book ends with the bookend saying this. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, He returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. The Adam Swift translation goes something like this. Don't put your ultimate hope in politicians because they put their pants on the same way you do. And every single one of them is going to die on you someday. We can overestimate human government. We can never overestimate God's rule and reign over all the world. That takes us to point number five. Point number five, God sovereignly works. He sovereignly works through human government. Into the wisdom literature of the Bible, uh, we find ourselves in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs has so much to say. I would encourage you to do a research this week on all that Proverbs has to say about government. But I want to point out in particular one verse in chapter 21, verse 1, honing in on the fact that God is sovereignly at work in these things. In Proverbs 21, verse 1, it says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. God is sovereignly at work in and through. All politicians that he raises up throughout all of history, and all the ones that are to come. We saw this when Don read for us in in Romans 13, that all human government is raised up and appointed by God for his own purposes, instituted by him. He, He works in and through them in a mysterious way that we can't always understand. and That might put a question, a good question, in some of our minds. If God sovereignly works through all human government, well, then how does it work when human government actively opposes his will, when they dishonor his truth and do not walk according to his way? How do we make sense of that in light of the mystery of God's sovereignty? That takes us into the prophetic writings of the Bible. This is a very carefully worded point. Point six, God is able to use human government's evil for his own purposes while still holding them accountable for their sin. That is very carefully worded. I want you to, to see the intentionality of how that's worded. God is able... To use human government's evil For his own purposes While Still holding them accountable For their sin Uh, A pop quiz here Um, What were the two nations That God raised up Evil nations God raised up in the history of Israel To bring about judgment on his people Okay Assyria was one of them And the second was Babylon Yep And in the prophetic writings, we see God refer to how he is using both of them. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10, God tells us about how he worked through this evil government, Assyria. Uh, Isaiah chapter 10, starting in verse 5, God says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, I send him. Against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. God is showing us how he's going to use this evil government to do his will. But he goes on to tell us what's going on in the heart of the Assyrians as they are going about their business. Do do they think or are they uh, aware of how God is sovereignly using them? Well, God helps us to see that that's not the intention in their heart. Take a look at verse 7. He tells us what the Assyrians are thinking while they oppress other people and do wicked things. Verse 7, he says, but he does not so intend. His heart does not so think. It is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. He goes on to talk about the arrogance in the heart of the Assyrian government and how God will judge them For what they are doing and the wicked acts they are committing against the nations. He does the same thing when he talks about Babylon as well. If we took a look at Jeremiah chapter 29, he tells his people how he has purposes for their good, even though he has sovereignly put them under exile under the wicked oppressive government of Babylon. In Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 4, And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And then in verse 10, he says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Friends, when we look at the reality of this, we are wading into the deep waters of God's mysteries that we just will never be able to fully understand. We can't plumb the depths of God's wisdom in these things. But there is a great comfort in, this, in these mysterious truths. That as we look at the world around us, we can be confident that there is no evil that has taken the upper hand of our God, but that in His amazing wisdom and sovereignty, He is able to use the evil intentions of man's hearts, the wicked atrocities of human governments and turn them to his own purposes to glorify himself and to bring about good for his people. In fact, we know just by very nature of the gospel itself that the most awful atrocity ever committed by human government was used to bring about the greatest blessing to all mankind. The murder of his son at the hands of a wicked government was turned and used to bring about salvation for anyone who would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. In Acts chapter 4, Peter, praying to God, says to him, Truly in this city they were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do what? to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place Oh, the mystery of God that he would plan that through world history and the intentions of man he would bring about salvation by using the intentions of man to to condemn his son kill his son so that he might be the sacrifice For all sins of the world, for any who would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that they too could be saved. It reminds me of an amazing hymn that William Cooper wrote. Um, How many of you know the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way? Any of you familiar with that hymn? It's a lesser known one. Uh, William Cooper, writing about the amazing wisdom and sovereignty of God, writes these words. They're beautiful words. He says deep in, unf- in an unfathomable minds of never failing skill he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will judge not the lord by feeble sense but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face his purposes will ripen fast unfolding every hour the bud may have a bitter taste but sweet will be the flower Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. We can trust God. But that does raise a question that we have to bring clarity in our minds. If God is sovereign and able to use the evil intentions of human government, Does that then just mean that we go along with whatever human government does? Even if they are uh, going against God's will, we just go along because, hey, God's sovereign and he's working these things to his purposes. Well, no, of course not. And that takes us to point number seven. We're in the New Testament. We're making progress. Point number seven, God commands us to obey human government only insofar as they do not conflict with him. When we get to the book of Acts, we're looking at the whole history of uh, the, the beginning stages of the apostolic church, the earliest stages of the church, as they seek to, to, to fulfill the Great Commission and be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And right away on that mission, they come into conflict with governing authorities right off the bat. And we see them seek to try to honor the human government as far as they can, but they also draw the line. In Acts chapter 5, in verse 29, in response to being told by governing authorities that they can no longer preach the gospel, Peter replies and says, we must obey God rather than man. We should seek to be the most obedient citizens there are as followers of Jesus, to be the most agreeable uh, servants of of, um, our nation as we can. But there is a line. There is a line. We cannot uh, pledge ultimate allegiance to America. We have to pledge ultimate allegiance to Jesus and him alone. And that takes us to eight into the epistles of the New Testament where we see that God commands that we honor and pray for human government. We are to honor and pray for human government. And we're told to do this in three different ways, three specific ways that we are to honor human government under God. The first one was contained in our scripture reading that Don read for us. We don't have to turn there. But Romans 13, 1 through 7, tells us that God has sovereignly instituted all politicians, all governing leaders. He has his purposes, and we ought to be in subjection to them, honor them by obeying what they ask us to do, as long as it does not conflict with God's word But secondly, we are to pray and praise God for them I'd like us to turn to, to 1 Timothy uh, Almost at the end of the Bible In your, in your uh, New Testament there 1 Timothy and chapter 2 1 Timothy chapter 2 Starting in verse 1 Paul gives these instructions to the church He says, first of all then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions And thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, We are, first of all, to pray for our governing officials. They do not have an easy job. They've got a very difficult job. They need wisdom, they need discernment to make decisions that would be honoring to God. But we're also supposed to praise God for all of the rulers that he appoints for us, even if we find it hard to praise God for them. Because any government is better than no government at all. And ultimately, Paul here is pointing to the fact that we should pray for their salvation. uh, That those uh, who are in uh, rule over nations, who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ savingly, would have their eyes of their hearts enlightened to see the truth of the gospel and to find eternal life in him. And then lastly, thirdly, we are to speak courteously to and about our governing officials. That's another way that we honor government under God, by speaking courteously about them. I'd like us to take a look at Titus chapter 3. Titus is the next book, right after 2 Timothy, Paul gives instructions about how we are to speak about and to all governing officials. And he says these words, starting in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Uh, Your local news stations and your social media feed, they don't want you to obey this commandment. In fact, they make a lot of money appealing to the part of you that doesn't want to obey this commandment. But this is the abiding commandment that God gives to all of us, that every single ruler we do not speak unkindly of. Uh, We are free and should have disagreements with them, but we are to show perfect courtesy, understanding that they are the servants of God that he has sovereignly given to us. I want to congratulate us and and thank uh, uh, you as servants of Grace Church because recently you did this very well at our day of service. I don't know how many of you participated in our day of service, but one of the things that we did was that we wrote letters of thanks and prayer to governing officials in our community and had them sent out. And what was amazing about that is we received about five or six handwritten letters back from those very governing officials, uh, writing back in their own hand, thanking us for the encouragement that we gave them, for the fact that we are praying for them. And praise God, even a a good number of them, by the wording that they use, seem to indicate that they themselves love the Lord Jesus, that are seeking to live lives in obedience and faith to him. Praise God for that, right? Amen. That is the kind of spirit that God wants for us at Grace Church, that we be careful about our lips, that we be careful about the things that we allow to ruminate about our governing officials in our heart and mind, that we love them the best we can. And that takes us to the end. We survived. Point number nine, praise God that we know God will subject all human government to Jesus' rule in the last day. If we could, in the amazing mystery of God, be able to see the beginning of when human government started and all the way to the end, we would see all of it funneling up, uh, culminating in this very moment when everyone, including human government, bows at the knee of Jesus. Jesus is promised he is coming back as king of kings and lord of lords. He will come to execute final judgment on all the world, to undo all that is bad, all that is evil, and establish perfectly all that is good and righteous and holy and good, uh, true and glorious. And he tells us about this in Revelation 21 when he makes a new earth and a new heaven that we will reside with forever. John tells us about what that will be like in Revelation 21 starting in verse 22. This is what you as a Christian will experience for all time with him. John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. When we look at all these nine points of what God has given us as tools in our spiritual tool belt to understand these things, we can now understand how Jesus, as the Son of God, was able to point to corrupt Rome and say, under God, obey it in as much as you can. He had a full-orbed understanding of how God has established human government, how he works in and through it, and how he commands us to interact with it. And we as Christians know the end game. We're on the winning team. All the injustices that we see in our world and our own nation will one day be held accountable. God will do away with it all. And Jesus will bring a reign of perfect peace And we will reign with him for all time. But until that day, we need wisdom and discernment under God. We need to use the tools that he has given us about this topic so that we might be followers of Jesus who honor human government under him. Until the day that Jesus comes, we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We need wisdom, discernment, and prayer as we hope for the final day. Would you pray with me?